Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. And if you would go ahead and turn with me to that passage, it's page 807, according to the liturgies in your pew Bibles, Matthew 1. And let me pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. How many of you got exactly what you wanted from Santa this morning? Okay. It's at least two of us. That's good. All right. Very good. How many of you are waiting until after church to open your gifts? That's what we're doing in our house. Okay. We're not early birds. Um, But so far, nobody got coal in their stocking or anything like that, right? Okay. Wonderful. Um, Some gifts, you know, are, are... hard to know what to do with, right? Because some gifts are truly kind of terrible. Um, And it's hard at Christmas because you can't just put it aside or ignore it. You have to at least pretend to like it, right? That's just an element of decency, right? Um, But what do you do with a gift that you can't understand and didn't ask for? Uh, One year at Christmas, some years back, uh, George's parents had a friend. He's passed away now. He's an older guy named Ed. Somehow befriended my mother-in-law. I I still don't understand the story, but any which way. Uh, He wasn't real tech-savvy or anything, but they bought him a a new cordless phone system for his house, and uh, and that way he could walk around and not be tethered to one spot. Now, if you're under the age of 25, uh, I'll just inform you that we used to have what were called landlines, and um, it was considered state-of-the-art to get a cordless landline phone system because that way you could talk to your girlfriend in your own room without stretching the cord all the way upstairs and, like, under your door and, like, that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, I'll never forget this Christmas because Ed's sitting there, and he's open to the thing, and he's sitting in the corner on, on the Lazy Boy here, and he's got the box in his arms, and he has the most miserable grump of a face on him, chin in his hand, and, and I... I made eye contact with him. You know, everybody else is busy opening their own things. I make eye contact. And he says to me, I don't know what the heck it is. (laughs) And he didn't say heck. (laughs) And it was all I could do to not bust out laughing right then and there. Like, Ed never did figure these phones out. This is technology that was totally lost on Ed. But uh, 
you know, we're wrapping up our, our time in Matthew's Gospel, and a similar thought kind of comes to mind, because someone here gets a gift, call it a Christmas present if you like, but uh, one that he has no obvious use for. Uh, he didn't ask for it, and he can't return it, uh, and it's a tricky thing for him to know how to handle it gracefully. Uh, we, we've been in Matthew's Gospel since January. I actually looked it up. We started on January 9th, uh, and uh, today we're going to end kind of where it started, uh, the arrival of Jesus on the scene, and that's a fitting way to finish the year, I think. We're, we're ending at the beginning. And Matthew has a very unique perspective on this whole thing. Now, other than Luke, only Matthew actually covers the details of Jesus' arrival, his birth. Um, Mark launches his gospel. I mean, he's the action-adventure gospel. That's what David calls it. He launches right in with, like, Jesus' baptism, and then he hits the road, you know. Uh, John, in his gospel, he sort of waxes eloquent and gets poetic about what the incarnation actually means, Um, and that's very good. Uh, But that leaves Matthew and Luke to kind of cover the actual details of the pregnancy and the birth, um, which is important because... Pregnancy and childbirth, like that's the nitty-gritty of life, and that's what Jesus came down to experience. Uh, And the Luke passage is probably more familiar to us in some ways because it has more details, and it's a wonderful read. Luke is a very good author. He's also a doctor, so he spends a lot of time talking about, you know, Elizabeth's unlikely pregnancy and Mary's impossible pregnancy. Um, But as a historian, Luke also gives us multiple perspectives as he's going through those first couple chapters of his book. So he gives us the perspective of Mary, the virgin mother, and uh, then he talks about Elizabeth's perspective, the, the elderly mother of John the Baptist, Zechariah, John's father, the priest, and Luke also gives us the perspective of the angels in heaven, right? Uh, he tells us that there was a party in heaven for Jesus' birthday. That's one reason why I think the the Christmas rush, as ridiculous as it seems, actually makes sense. Like, if the angels got that excited, surely there should be some excitement on earth, right? But Luke also gives us the perspective of the local shepherds, right, and how they rejoiced and praised God for this, this mysterious baby. But, oddly enough, one perspective is, like, completely absent in Luke's gospel, uh, he gets mentioned in passing, and that's about it. Joseph, Mary's fiancé, is almost completely glossed over. He's like an afterthought in Luke's account. And it's strange, because he's right there in the thick of the story, you figure. Uh, and yet, apparently, almost no one thought to ask about how he felt about all this, you know? And if we only had Luke's account, that would still be a mystery. Joseph would be little more than a footnote of history. Not that he wouldn't be an important character, but he would be little more than like a silhouette. And thankfully, that's where Matthew steps in. Uh, and it's such a gracious thing that God provides us this narrative because Joseph is a character I think is worth looking into. Uh, and the longer you look at him, the more sympathetic he becomes uh, because he's the guy who got the gift he really didn't want. He's like Ed with the new cordless phone, only it's much worse than that. You know, like, what did Joseph get for Christmas? Is the question that came to my mind again and again. And it's like, someone else's baby? Like, really what he got was like a huge headache. That's what Joseph got for Christmas. Joseph's version of the nativity story makes us want to ask a fundamental question, and it's a question that might have been on Joseph's mind. 
And it's a question that Matthew's Jewish readers would probably be asking. And more than that, it's a question that many people today are probably still asking. And the question is basically this. What's in this for me? Now, I say it that way, and maybe it sounds provocative and rude and presumptuous, but it's a normal thing to ask. It's kind of logical, isn't it? Uh, Because everything we do in life is because... For the most part, we have somehow measured the pros and cons and decided that we're going to choose to do this thing uh, because it'll be better for me somehow. Obviously, we often miscalculate. We constantly make ourselves unhappy because we make stupid decisions and we don't calculate well. But we do almost everything that we do, at least in part because we think that we'll benefit. We'll get something out of it. Even the most selfless things. You know, we often do it because it makes us feel good. And we like feeling good, right? But Joseph has to look at this gift and ask, what am I supposed to do with these things? This is the sort of gift that ends up costing you. You know, there's a reason why you wouldn't really want, like, a Maserati for Christmas, right? Can't even afford to get the oil changed. Like, what, what good is it? Like, what am I supposed to do with that thing? You know, kids ask for ponies and things like this, and it's like they never consider the cost of ownership, you know, when that crosses <laughs> their mind, you know? And I'm thinking Joseph has to be wiser than that. He's not a child. Uh, He knows that this gift is going to cost him dearly. The one thing that is clear in this story is that Joseph was dealt a very difficult hand. Like all this month, we've been talking through Advent about welcoming Jesus and what that looks like, right? And it's hard for me to think of a man who had less reason to welcome this child than Joseph. From Joseph's perspective, this isn't simple or easy. In fact, the more I look at it, the more unbearable the situation becomes. How does the whole thing start? It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Just for the record, I don't think that last part was probably obvious to Joseph in the moment. Okay. Children have fathers, right? Uh, That's the way it works. And since this was before they came together, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, ergo, this cannot be Joseph's child. That much is certain. Now, remember, Matthew is writing to Jews, and a Jewish audience will be asking a lot of questions right now. They're going to be putting themselves in Joseph's shoes because that's how Matthew has set the whole story up. They're going to immediately be asking, what is Joseph going to do about this situation? What do you do? Joseph's in a messy spot here. Now, there's only a couple options, really, uh, if your fiancé is pregnant before the wedding. If it's your child, if it's Joseph's child, that's a shameful thing because they're not legally married yet. However, the Old Testament has a provision for that. Get married. Shotgun weddings were God's idea originally. That's, Deuteronomy 22 is pretty clear about this. So, in that case, Joseph would be embarrassed, sure, but he would still end up with what he wanted, a wife and a child on the way, and, you know, the shame of a shotgun wedding fades pretty quickly from the local gossip. However, if the child is not Joseph's, things get far more complicated because the same chapter of Deuteronomy is a bit harsher when it comes to that thing. Basically, if an engaged woman messes around with another man, it would mean that the other man, at least, and possibly Mary, too, would both be facing the death penalty. Now, 
Admittedly, that was law in ancient Israel. I don't know how common it was to actually get stoned at this point. They're under Roman law. I'm thinking it was probably less common. But the fact remains that the shame is much deeper, obviously, if this isn't Joseph's kid. And, of course, Joseph knows full well that it isn't his. So what do you do now? How can Joseph preserve his dignity and deal with this thing? We all know abortion wasn't an option because even in Roman Judea, they weren't as barbaric as we are now. So Joseph has two options. He can either report Mary and either get her killed or at least make her a pariah. What would Joseph get out of that? Well, he'd get the satisfaction of righteous indignation. That sounds petty, but you all know how good that feels, don't you? Nothing feels more satisfying in the moment than being smug. When you've been hurt by someone, the thought of their being humiliated is almost irresistible. It's why we all have a streak of schadenfreude to us, right? We call it their comeuppance, right? And it just feels good. And... uh, You know, Georgia sometimes tells a story of a time in her childhood when her sister was being a pain about something, and somehow Georgia ended up being punished for it. And as her sister's leaving the room to go downstairs, just for spite, she turns around, stops, and sticks out her tongue at Georgia. But in the process, she missed the first step and fell down the stairs. Georgia still smiles when she tells that story because she's a sinner. But we all feel that way, don't we? We want the one who hurt us to get hurt. And it's hard to imagine a man who would feel more justified in his righteous anger and maybe entitled to a little schadenfreude than Joseph. Joseph could report Mary and have the satisfaction of being vindicated. He would have the sympathy of everyone in town. And he could start over and go find himself another nice girl. But Joseph's a better man than that. Verse 19 says, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Ah, there's another option here. Joseph can still call off the engagement. He has every right to do so, but he can do so quietly. This doesn't have to be broadcast for everyone, and that has some serious benefits. And one is that Joseph doesn't look like a fool because your fiancé cheating on you brings shame on you, so you don't necessarily want to advertise it. You know, you can yell it from the rooftops, but it basically tells the world that she wasn't that keen on you, apparently, you know? You weren't worth waiting for, apparently. It's not very flattering for Joseph either, right? But more importantly, keeping it quiet keeps Mary from being exposed to shame. Now, that would not be a priority to lesser men, but Joseph is not a lesser man. Matthew says that the whole reason that Joseph wanted to keep it quiet was that he was worried about Mary. Now, that's a remarkable man. In his mind, he's been cheated on, and yet his first instinct is to protect her. And it's interesting that Matthew doesn't portray Joseph as somehow less righteous for not wanting Mary punished. In fact, he says that's exactly what makes him so just. Matthew is basically saying that Joseph understands the heart of God and not just the letter of the law. 
He hadn't just read the Deuteronomy passage. Joseph had also read Hosea, and he knew Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Joseph didn't want to demand his rights or get payback or revenge. He just wanted to love God and also to treat Mary with dignity, even if she didn't deserve it. And this move by Joseph would maintain his dignity as well. Uh, anyone who heard this story would be amazed at his patience, and they would say, boy, that Joseph... What a guy. I feel so bad for him. He has the patience of a saint. But it would protect her too. In other words, it would be a very hard decision, but it would give Joseph the best chance to have a clean conscience and also at least a shred of dignity. And I think it would even be a godly way of handling it, typically. But God doesn't give Joseph that option, does he? It almost seems like God is intent on depriving Joseph of any shred of dignity in the situation at all. He has no interest in Joseph's saving face, as we say. God has another option in mind, and it makes the least sense on paper. He puts Joseph in a terribly difficult position. What does he say? As Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God's solution to this dilemma is to tell Joseph to go through with the wedding. Endure the shame and the mockery, protect Mary, but basically act like nothing happened. That's the most ridiculous option of all, from a human perspective. If Mary had cheated, God could say, like, he could have said even in that situation, like, Joseph, marry her anyway, uh, and... Maybe that would be more like the story of Hosea. If you're familiar with Hosea's story in the Old Testament, God made Hosea marry an adulterous prostitute uh, named Gomer, just to prove a point. Uh, that's not an enviable position. I don't, you know, I, I, I would hope not everybody has to be in Hosea's shoes, but at least Hosea had the satisfaction of being the aggrieved party in the situation, right? Like, because he represented God in the allegory. But it's worse, I think, because God says, Mary didn't cheat. So Joseph doesn't get the satisfaction of feeling like a martyr in this situation. Mary didn't make a mistake. She's actually a hero for doing this. So Joseph can't even grumble about it. He has to pretend to be excited. I noticed something interesting looking at the passage this year. The angel says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid to do it. That's kind of a weird way to put it. Like, what would Joseph be afraid of? The more natural reaction would be anger, I would think. Anger at God for choosing his fiance for this project. Like, of all the girls in the world, you had to take mine. Anger at Mary for agreeing so quickly. Like, if Mary was able to say to Joseph, in good conscience, look, I tried to say no. God said I had no choice. He said I had to. That would be one thing. But Luke tells us she jumped in with both feet. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, according to your word. Imagine telling that story to Joseph. 
like, when did you put up a little bit of fight, Mary? Like, did you have a discussion with them? Were you going to tell them you needed to discuss it with me at some point or something? Like, you know, did you, God want to run it by me first? Like, I'm the man of the house, right? Like, Mary welcomed the crazy. And I bet Joseph would almost feel, and this is going to sound odd, it's going to feel like Mary cheated on him with God. That sounds ridiculous, except I think, I, I bet some husbands can relate to this feeling, because I confess I have sometimes been nearly resentful when I feel like my wife's walk with Jesus seems more intimate than mine. I can feel simultaneously like ashamed that I'm not doing better in my own prayer life and such, and, and resentful that she seems holier than me. I think that's a common enough feeling. I imagine Joseph's feeling that to the umpteenth right now. So yeah, I would say anger was the likelier response, but God knows the mind of Joseph, and apparently what's dominating his heart is fear. Not the fear and anger are unattached often. Again, Joseph is a just man. He's not given to fits of rage. He's not controlled by his anger like so many men. He's a steady man, unflappable. But he has some legitimate fears. As old man Marley says in Home Alone, you're never too old to be afraid. The angel doesn't rebuke Joseph either. He, he's here to encourage him. <clears throat> But somehow I doubt Joseph took a whole lot of comfort in the moment. In fact, this arrangement would only serve to increase my fears if I were in his shoes. Because from this point forward, if Joseph obeys God, he will face fears. Think about this. From day one, people will know, or at least suspect, that Joseph's not the father of this child. And in gossip circles, there will be talk. And that talk will start immediately. Joseph has nine months of hard obedience ahead of him. Every day is going to require him making the choice to keep going, and not only to keep going, but to be cheerful about it. And verse 25 tells us that he didn't even know Mary for that entire nine-month span. And Luke says that they weren't even legally married even at the birth. In his account, he says they were still betrothed. That means the embarrassment was daily because they're not even pretending that it's Joseph's kid. If it was, they would get married and just play along, right? But instead, Joseph maintains this awkward relationship for nine long months and the rumor mills would roll. And the rumors would sting. Why? Because Joseph is a decent man. He's just. I think in some ways it would hit him even harder than Mary because he would be absorbing the blows for her. She is free to be at home and in nesting mode a little bit, distracted with the pregnancy itself and that kind of thing. She's home making baby clothes. and Not Joseph. He has to go to work every day. He has to face customers all the people in town. God takes away all the dignified options for Joseph. Divorce would be natural. A quiet divorce would be dignified and generous. Marrying Mary immediately would create the assumption of a shotgun marriage, and 
just about any method would be better for Joseph than this. And you've got to think of it this way, too. This is being written years after he's dead. Which means he never saw the ministry that Jesus was born for. He probably left Jesus in charge of the workshop uh, when he died, and he would have assumed, well, I guess, carpentry is his calling. Like, Joseph heard the promises, but he never lived to see them fulfilled. We talked about how hard that was for John the Baptist, but Joseph saw even less than he did. And yet Joseph apparently accepted God's command, didn't he? Verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What did Joseph get for Christmas? He didn't get comfort or dignity. So what was his reward? What did his obedience get him? How did Joseph really feel about all this? Did he secretly resent the situation, as many of us would? After nine months of this, most men would be sick of the whole thing, I bet, but no. Joseph, being a just man, a God-fearing man, trusted God, and he obeyed him willingly. And one of the ways we know this is because Joseph was given one unique gift, something he took advantage of, and it's something so subtle I almost missed it. He has one unique, solitary privilege that he contributes to this situation. Joseph got to name Jesus. No one else could do that. Only Joseph, as Mary's legal husband, and humanly speaking, the legal father of Jesus, only he could legally name the boy. And in that moment, Joseph faces a final test because after nine months of waiting and during the shame and the gossip, Joseph could have claimed the child by naming him after himself. He could have planted a flag on this child and regained some of the tattered dignity that was remaining, but instead he gives him the name assigned by God through the angel. And I think in that moment he simultaneously adopts the boy, but he also dedicates him to the Lord. Now, of course, the angel told him which name to use, but Joseph obeyed, and it was his decision legally. His name's on the birth certificate, as it were. And now, the same name that we call on daily and worship even today legally was given by Joseph. And that says to me that Joseph has fully accepted what the Lord is doing. He submitted to the Lord's plan. He named the boy Jesus. He claims the child as his own, but he does it on God's term. And after all the suffering, we can say conclusively that Joseph welcomed Jesus. There's a streak of really bad theology that's popular among televangelists in the Word of Faith movement, and they call it the, the name it and claim it thing. That slogan, you've ever heard it? You know, Just demand things in God's name, and apparently he has to give it to you. That's a stupid bit of theology, a bad prayer plan. But just this once, just this once, the slogan works. Joseph, by naming Jesus, is claiming him as his son 
And in the human sense, Jesus will not be an orphan, but Joseph is also claiming the promise. And that means that he is claiming Jesus as his Savior, because that's what Jesus means. It means the Lord is salvation. He names the baby Savior. And in Joseph's position, you only do that if you really believe it. Anyway, beloved, my message today is not to focus on Joseph. I'm urging you this Christmas morning to imitate him and focus instead on Jesus, because that's what Joseph did. He spent nine months enduring mockery and whispering and being thought of as a fool for years to come even after the birth for the sake of naming and claiming this holy child. And Joseph might not have understood everything that was happening here, but he accepted that it was from the Lord and was therefore good. He had the least reason of all to be excited and to welcome Jesus, but he endured the shame so that he could claim the name. He saw Jesus as a gift worth waiting for. And that is a good reminder for us on Christmas morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son. We thank you that Matthew saw fit to record, Lord, in your providence, this, this account from Joseph's perspective, Lord. What a difficult test to face. But Lord, what a gift you were sending. What a unique and wonderful thing, Lord. And if he only could have known all the fullness of what was really being promised here, and I doubt that he saw it in the moment. What a privilege, what an honor. Lord, make us as willing and as joyful in receiving Jesus even this morning. Thank you for sending him. We praise you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.